Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Hello, I'm Peter King. Welcome to the MMQB podcast with Peter King, where I take you inside the minds of the biggest influencers in the NFL. This week, Washington quarterback Kirk Cousins, Tim Rohan, my compatriot at the MMQB, and a subject for Tim Rohan this week, former NFL quarterback, current Columbia Firefly minor league baseball player, Tim Tebow. I asked Kirk Cousins... Why is he not signed long-term with his team in Washington? I will continue to look at it the way I've looked at every year. It it just feels so much to me like it's week to week and year year to year. It it doesn't feel like I can map anything out. I've never felt that way. I've never felt comfortable, and, and I think that's a good thing to have. I asked Tim Rohan, what was it like to hang around with Tim Tebow? You know, it's just like it's a minor league baseball game. You're asking about the atmosphere. There's sack races in between innings. The mm-hmm. constant, you know, pop music and video, you know, board stuff and, you know, running out on the field with a child before the game. And, and he's embraced all of it. He's been a great sport. And, you know, it's only been two weeks. And Tim Rohan asked Tim Tebow, why are you playing minor league baseball? I get to play professional baseball every single day, have fun. Where that ends, I don't know. But I sure can tell you the beginning of the story has been a lot of fun. And it's been a joy. It's been awesome. And I can't wait till the game tonight. Those conversations and much more coming up, including some thoughts on the passing of NFL legend Dan Rooney. And now my conversation with Kirk Cousins. So we're here with Kirk Cousins. We're actually in one of the strangest places that Kirk Cousins has ever done an interview, never mind me. We are at the Titanic Hotel in (laughs) Liverpool, England. And uh, Kirk and I are on um, an NFL UK trip to sort of gauge the interest, promote the game of football over in England it is the middle of April, and uh, I have to say, Kirk, I've really had a good time doing this. This has been a lot of fun. What have you thought? Oh, I've had a blast. It's been great to get to know you and, and travel around with you and, and Kurt Warner and Jarvis Landry, and uh, I'm excited about the prospects of uh, the NFL having more and more of a presence here in the U.K. as the as the years move forward. I think we all have seen the fact that it looks like there really could be a team here. And I think so. I wonder as a player, do you think, like, my first thought is, I remember one time Corey Simon, a former defensive lineman in the NFL, played at Florida State and then with the Eagles. Uh, when he was a free agent, he, like, eliminated Seattle right off the bat because he said it felt like it was so far away. <laughs> so how do you think players would react to a team in London? I think players initially would have some concerns about the travel, the distance from family, 
the competitive disadvantage. So that's where the league has to get creative with ways to level the playing field. Maybe there's uh, a tax rebate of some kind from the league. Maybe there's uh, a home base in the states that the team can use uh, throughout much of the year when they are stateside. Um, and maybe there's some perks by living over here that the league can work out that make it advantageous to be here. So there are things that need to be done, but I think uh, it won't stop the league. And and uh, it's so important for our game to continue to grow. And we as players want to see the game grow. So uh, if that means playing internationally, then so be it. With Kirk Cousins here on the MMQB podcast with Peter King. So, Kirk, uh, one of the things in getting to know you a bit I found out is that, first of all, um, you and your wife are going to have a baby, and you had one of the most unique ways to announce a child in NFL <laughs> history. I want you to tell me and tell us how exactly you guys did that, you and Julie Cousins. Sure. Yeah, Julie, it was mostly Julie's ideas, but uh, initially she put a little uh, sign on our dog Bentley that said, Mom and Dad are getting me a human. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Bentley's pretty cute, so that goes over well always. And then, <laughs> and then after that, we we did a gender reveal. Uh, I threw a a football filled with uh, blue powder. I threw it at a at a little cardboard target, and it exploded into into blue. And to to say we're having a baby boy, so that went over well as well. So uh, credit Julie for those ideas. But uh, she's very excited, and and we're both excited that uh, there's a baby on the way. You guys are interesting when you travel because you're you're really not big nightlifers anyway. It doesn't seem, no. and uh, you just kind of enjoy being around each other uh, early nights and everything. <laughs> uh, what, what's your what's your real life like? Is that um, what it is? I, yeah, I'm I'm an old soul, and um, um, I enjoy going to bed early and getting up early, and. Um, you know, I was never the partier in college, and uh, I can still have a good time with people, but um, I can also be an old man at times, and my wife's no different. She, she too, likes to go to bed early, and, you know, with the baby now, she's sleeping every chance she can get, so uh, we do enjoy each other's company, and part of the fun of coming here with the NFL is the chance that she gets to come with me, and we get to travel and see the world together, uh, especially before having kids, when it's going to be harder to do, so... We try to take advantage of these opportunities when we can. One of the things we discussed, we took a train uh, from London to Liverpool, and one of the things we discussed on the train was kind of your love of books, mm -hmm. which is is kind of cool for me because I'm a book fan. Mm -hmm. And uh, I want you to, if you can, we, we had a conversation about like the Jack Welch book winning sure. And you really value that. What was it about that book particularly that you liked and made you want to share it? Well, Jack writes quite a bit about leadership in his materials, and he was an iconic leader in, in our American culture. And uh, I've heard so many different principles of leadership that it almost gets tired to keep hearing them over and over. And the number of leadership books you see when you walk into a bookstore gets old. But Jack's principles were principles that I had never heard of before and had never thought about practicing. And yet, when he brought them up in the book, I realized how common they are and how effective they are. And it's made me a better leader understanding those principles. So um, I really enjoyed his materials because I thought it was something fresh and something new. And um, I've 
really seen him as a, as a mentor from a distance, if you will, by reading his resources. You had a chance to meet him? I did have a chance to meet him at a, at a speaking event that I had in Chicago, and uh, um, I bumped into him one other time as well. So uh, he's been a, uh, you know, someone that I uh, enjoy having as a, someone I can reach out to and ask some questions of from time to time. But uh, a man at his altitude, he flies at a different altitude than me, so I try to you know, not bother him too much. So what would you say is one thing that you really took away from the Jack Welch book? Uh, one point that stood out to me among many was the thought of uh, letting people know where they stand. He talked about how whether you're a manager at a, at a small company or whether you're the, an NFL quarterback, it's important to let uh, those around you know where they stand when they work for you. And many of us think we're being offensive or we're being mean by doing that. But as he explains in his book, it's, it's very kind to tell people where they stand so that they know, so that they can change and fix something that's broken. If they never know and are never told, that can be very cruel because they have no way of being able to improve. And next thing you know, they're let go, they're fired, and they have no idea why because no one ever told them where they stood. So um, it goes against human nature to confront people, and it can be awkward. But for healthy organizations, I think it's important to communicate to people where they stand and let them know where they need to improve to remain a part of the group and to eventually climb the ladder. Are you much of a sports book reader? I like to read biographies of athletes and not just football players, although I do enjoy reading those. Um, but I do like to read nonfiction, sports books, uh, mostly biographies, autobiographies. Um, on the bye week every year, I try to read one. I read Steve Young's book, uh, Behind the Spiral, that came out last fall. I read that in my bye week. A couple of years prior, I read a biography on uh, Mariano Rivera that he had written an autobiography called The Closer. Um, I enjoy... Uh, reading a book about Tiger Woods by Hank Haney called The Big Miss. So uh, all across sports, I enjoy reading because now as a professional athlete, I think there's a lot to be gained from hearing someone else's story and what they went through in professional sports, on the field, off the field, with their family, their training, their preparation, what made them great. And every book, I tend to pick something up that I take with me. You've talked about two quarterbacks on this trip a lot. Uh, One is Drew Brees and one is Tom Brady. Why do those guys have value to you? I think both of them are self-made. I think both of them um, have had to work very hard to get to where they are. And I think along with an Aaron Rodgers, uh, they're the gold standard uh, in the NFL um, between having Super Bowl rings, uh, consistently producing at a elite Pro Bowl Hall of Fame level year in and year out, staying healthy. Um, I think they, they do things the right way. They represent their team well, their community well, their teammates have good things to say about them. And, um, uh, there are some other really good ones, too. Phillip Rivers, Aaron Rodgers. I mean, I can go on and on with great quarterbacks in this league, Matt Ryan in Atlanta. But uh, those are two guys that I think have done it for a long, long time. And, um, you know, I think we're all chasing guys like that and trying to get to their level. We had some discussions on this trip about Brady and particularly about when I went out to see him in Montana after the Super Bowl. Are there things that you can learn about people and you think they can benefit you when you read about them sort of in the moment? I do. I think, you know, your article that you wrote after your trip out there was very helpful for me to understand Tom's preparation, to understand his perspective on on things like um, the relationship with the commissioner, how he handles outside criticism, how he handles media. 
um, the way he treats people in the media, the way he treats people uh, that he interacts with, all those things are good lessons for me to take away and learn from, from a distance. Um, so I'm always trying to gain information and knowledge and understanding of how I can better handle my uh, role in Washington. And um, I thought my time with you on the train and, and the time here has been very informative as well. What's interesting is that you know how if, you, if, you're, if you're in my shoes, you look at the way you have been uh, like in Liverpool with Kurt Warner. And what was so interesting is that you're like sucking him dry for information. <laughs> you know, you're asking him about different things. We were on the bus back from the venue last night. It was about a 30-minute ride. And the whole time, you and he are talking football. What, what has it been like to be with him? Yeah. What do you think you've taken from him? It's great to have someone who's played the position, again, at a very high level, and he's willing to share what he knows. And he, he does a really good job of articulating what he does know, where it makes total sense. And I find myself just nodding my head and in, in, in total agreement with what he's sharing. Um, we've talked about you know the off-season preparation, how he stayed in shape into his late 30s playing the game, uh, what he found worked for him, what didn't work. Um, and I found it interesting that he talked about, like he really agreed with Brady in the whole thing about, you know, lifting weights is overrated. You <laughs> yeah, know, it's flexibility yeah, and it stretching is. and things like that. It is. And, and he talks about, you know, knowing how to deliberately practice the things that you need to practice and not just mindlessly going out and doing something that looks to the untrained eye like you're working really hard. And it may make you feel better at the end of the day, but did it really make you better as a quarterback? And uh, it really takes uh, uh, the right approach to really sit down and say, what do I actually need to improve? What made me struggle last year at times? And then how do I go out and improve those things uh, you know, deliberately day in and day out when I have the time? What are the things you think when you look at this offseason that you consciously are working on? I think... First of all, now that I'm uh, 28 years old, about to be 29 in training camp, and I've now started for a couple of seasons, I see the value in staying healthy. Um, I'm no good to my team on the bench, and as I get older and continue to put games behind me, it's going to be harder and harder to stay healthy. And so I want to you know, work out any imbalances, develop greater flexibility, greater stability, such that I feel good about my ability to stay healthy. And as the years go on, I can show that I am staying healthy. Uh, that's first and foremost. And then secondly, I want to get better at my situational awareness, my in-game awareness uh, that influences decision-making where I'm coached to do certain things on certain plays, but that can all change based on the situation in the game. Um, there was a situation against the Vikings uh, last season, late in the game on a third and goal where I took a sack. And normally we would say, you can never take a sack. That's a negative play. But in that specific situation, it forced the Vikings to use their last timeout. We were still able to get a field goal because of our position on the field. The, the loss of yards didn't affect the chances of making the field goal. And it ended up being one of the better plays I made that day. Um, that's where situational awareness can really help you as a quarterback. Uh, there are other times where I didn't understand the situation well. And don't have to look any further than the final uh, play of the season where I threw an interception, trying to throw it to Pierre Garçon and was intercepted. And, and uh, that was a play where, knowing the situation, first down, we've crossed the 50, there's plenty of time, we only need a field goal to tie, touchdown would win. There's no need to force the ball there. You can throw it away, you can try to scramble, you can even take a sack. All of that can be remedied, but uh, the decision I chose to make for that situation was, was um, you know, catastrophic for our team. So 
that's something I'm going to get better at, and I want to start practicing day in and day out during OTAs, uh, thinking about situations over and over. How do you avoid being scarred by things like that? I always wonder, especially with an intense fan base like the D.C. area, uh, I mean, that game left a mark on a lot of people, you know, sure. because everybody wanted to make the playoffs. Sure. You wanted your team to yeah. make the playoffs. So how do you avoid – you want to take that seriously, but mm-hmm. you don't want to keep it as a burden. Yeah, unless you've walked with me my entire career and career by going back to youth football, high school football, you don't realize that this isn't the first time I've thrown game-ending interceptions. This isn't the first time that I've cost my team the season. This isn't the first time that I've had a failure that's kept me up at, at nights. You know, this this happens. This is part of the journey. And um, I threw a game-ending interception at Notre Dame my sophomore year at college that at the time I thought was the end of the world. And I look back now and just chuckle. It was a part of, of the process, and I think that – uh, much the same way any of the failures I've had in the NFL. I was benched in 2014. It looked like I might be resigned to be a career backup at best at that time. Um, so you look back at that now and you chuckle. And I think that whether it was the interception at the end of the season or other negative plays throughout the year, you have to just have the mental, emotional, and physical toughness to just keep pushing and keep going and understanding that over time uh, that can become a distant memory. The interesting thing about being a quarterback is that you really need to have a memory to improve. Correct. But you can't have a memory that's going to torment you in a lot of ways, you know. And so what's the difference between the two? Well, the one – someone who remembers all the details is someone who's, um, you know, going to be able to learn from it and uh, takes their job seriously and has a, a professional's mindset to what they do. It's not a hobby. It's truly a job, and they treat it as such. But someone who uh, replays the negative reel over and over in their mind, um, you know, I would say that's where there's a lack of mental toughness. There's an inability to move on. And I've been guilty of that at times, just like anybody else. You know, there's a desire to be a perfectionist. And while you want to be perfect and it's great to set high standards and have a commitment to excellence, uh, you can also, you know, hurt yourself by asking an unrealistic standard of yourself. So, um, you know, I think the longer I play, the more confidence I gain, the less I do that. And that's where these last two years have been so beneficial for me to have started this many games in a row, to be able to build up all that uh, foundation for my career and to have that behind me. I think that only serves me even uh, better going forward. You know, I know you've answered this question 168 times, but it <laughs> always really interests me that you know, you're sitting there on draft day you know, almost five years ago now. And you're sitting there on draft day, and I'm sure you see, you know, Andrew Luck and Robert Griffin III go one-two, and you're probably wondering what's going to happen to you. On that draft weekend, deep down, who would you think was going to take you? That's a great question. Um, I visited, before the draft, I visited the Eagles, the Broncos, um, and the Buffalo Bills, and I thought – all three of those teams had a legitimate interest in me and had a legitimate interest in, in finding a quarterback. Um, so I was thinking one of those teams. I also knew that because I probably wasn't going to be a first-round pick, there was a chance that I could go to anybody as the draft went on later and later. But of the 32 teams in the NFL, I viewed the Redskins as the 32nd most likely team <laughs> to pick me because they had already drafted their quarterback and his style of play being so athletic was – so different from my style of play. I would have much rather, much more expected to go to the Colts and back up a guy like Andrew Luck, 
uh, than someone like Robert Griffin. So, Isn't the irony of the whole situation that Mike and Kyle Shanahan, their history is with Kirk Cousins, yes, that type of quarterback versus Robert Griffin III? There's quite a bit of irony in the whole situation, <laughs> and I'm fortunate that I ended up where I did. And I think it's a reminder for me going forward that you you never can tell what's going to happen. You just have to keep going. You can never get too high or too low. And um, I think more than just being a Washington Redskin, it was the privilege to play for Mike Shanahan, to learn from him uh, the way he sees the game, the fact that I got to learn from a, a Super Bowl-winning head coach and uh, the fact that he's coached Joe Montana and Steve Young and John Elway and on and on and on. He's one of the greatest offensive minds in the history of football, and Steve Young says such in his book, uh, and I would agree. So the, the chance to get to learn from him before he moved on will be something that will affect my entire professional career. So what, what did you think that day? What did you see? Did you see it scrolled across the screen, or did you get the phone call? I got the phone call, and I was told if a scout calls or a position coach calls, they're just calling to check in and see what else you're hearing. But if a GM, a head coach, or an owner calls, that means you're getting picked. So based on the call, before they say anything, you can know. And I got a call from a Virginia number and uh, right away thought, okay, the only team out there would be the Redskins, but I can't expect them to pick me. So I figured it would be a scout or a position coach. And I answered it, and it's Kirk. This is Mike Shanahan, the head coach of the Washington Redskins. And he didn't have to say anything else. I knew right, <laughs> right then and there I was getting picked. And there was actually uh, – Have you had any bigger surprises in your life? Um, I'm sure I have had bigger surprises, but uh, that one threw me off guard. And uh, I was a little bit disappointed. I wasn't discouraged, but I was a little bit disappointed and felt like a dead end at the time. And Mike used to joke with me saying, don't be mad at me. I'm the one that picked you. But, uh, uh, I, you know, as, as time has shown, um, I've met other people around the league and they've said, you know, we had a high draft grade on you. We just didn't need a quarterback. So we drafted a different position and, and moved on. And um, I hate to be corny about this, really, <laughs> but I always think because of the difficulty of the position and adjusting to the NFL, sometimes I think it's a curse to be Jared Goff. <laughs> I mean, really, to be the first pick in the draft when you've got a long way to go. Maybe you've played a lot of spread and everything. Sure. So, really, and even though you weren't a classic spread quarterback, right. obviously, it almost was a benefit to you to be able to sit and watch and sort of learn from not only how to do things right, but how to do things wrong because sure. there were so many missteps with Robert Griffin III. So now you look at it, what do you think of having the perspective of basically being a nowhere man for a couple of years? It, it's just fine to sit and wait. Um, as long as you know that opportunity is coming, I think the hard part is sitting and waiting as a fourth-round pick, and you don't know. You have no idea if your career is going to end up as a, a backup or you're going to fizzle out and not even be on a team. So that was the challenge, was sitting there not knowing what I was going to end up as. I think looking back, knowing where it was going to go, you can easily sit and wait and be patient. Um, but I, I certainly you know, didn't have that understanding, and so it was tough to sit and be patient. Whereas as a first-round pick, it helps to know that, hey – I'm going to go out there. I'm going to have plenty of time to learn. Sure, it's not going to necessarily go great my first year, but there's time on my side, and I can afford to be out there in the fire learning and making mistakes because it's all part of the growth process. And when you're that top 10 pick who has that long leash, that can be a blessing too to know that even in failure, I have time to learn from it, and it's going to be a great way to uh, quickly improve. What do you think are the biggest lessons you retain from Mike and Kyle Shanahan? 
Uh, just from a specific coaching point, I think it's um, uh, little lessons like read with your feet. You know, you let your drop, your footwork tell you when to progress from number one to number two. Don't wait on a guy if you think he's going to come open. If your feet are telling you that the timing of the play has forced you to get on with your progression, then move on. And the interception I threw against the Giants is a great reminder of that. My feet had told me to not throw the ball where I threw it and to move on, and yet I ignored that and threw the ball anyway. So reading with do my it? feet. Well, I think that's the, that's the question, right, is why did I do it? And I have to go back and say, why did I do it? And I think it's a lack of situational awareness, uh, trying to make a play so badly, trying to do too much, trying to fix everything in one throw. Uh, is a classic quarterback mistake where you have to just be patient and let the game come to you. Even in crucial moments in two-minute drills, you still have to let the game come to you, and that's what Tom Brady's been so good at for so many years. Um, so something I'm still working on. But um, I do think plays like that help teach you and remind you the next time to be that much more disciplined, and it's a, a gradual process. Now, also from the Shanahan's, uh, I remember Mike used a quote that I stick with me all this time, is tough times don't last, tough people do. And uh, when you watch a guy like him who you know has been through uh, the highest of highs and the lowest of lows through all the years, uh, when it comes from him, it means a lot. Tough, uh, tough times don't last, tough people do. And that's something that I'll stick, it'll stick with me my entire career because there are bound to be tough times. But uh, as I've learned over the last 10 years since I graduated from high school, tough people do last. And um, I, I want to be a, a tough person going forward and hopefully be around for a long time. You, you really have had one of the strangest first few years of a career that anybody has ever had. And, and, and now, so let's go to the present. You know, when I sort of look at where you are right now, I see a guy who almost anything can happen to you. You know, you could sign with Washington and play for the next 10 years. Right. You could uh, be let go at the end of this right. year, at the end of 2017, which I doubt will happen. Or you could get franchised again for the most ridiculous one-year sum in NFL history, $34 million. So how do you look at where you are right now? I think I will continue to look at it the way I've looked at every year. It, it just feels so much to me like it's week to week and year, year to year. It, it doesn't feel like I can map anything out. I've never felt that way. I've never felt comfortable. And, and I think that's a good thing to have. You don't have any entitlement. Um, and so... I'll just play it out and see where I'm at. I know that every week it feels like a, a proving of myself, and that's okay. Um, Brock but is it, really, is it really okay? Is well, it really it, deep down because okay? Because the, the nature of this league is such that it's going to have to be okay. Many players are told you're going to need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's the way this league operates. This is, the margin for error is so small. The difference between the joys of winning and the agony of defeat is one play here, one inch there. That's the way this league is. That's what makes it great. But it doesn't mean that it's going to be easy for the players involved. Uh, and believe me, there are far greater challenges in this league than, than the situation I'm in. I mean, there are guys getting cut, not knowing where they're going to have to move their families, uh, not knowing you know, where their next job's going to be. That's a much tougher situation than where I am. So I feel very fortunate and uh, look forward to the opportunity that I have in Washington. Um, but a guy like Brock Osweiler signs a four-year deal last year, and everyone is saying that's what I should be looking for. Well, he's not even with that team one year later. So was his contract really more than a one-year deal? I guess technically because he's still on that contract in Cleveland, but it certainly didn't play out the way anyone had hoped in that situation. So for me, uh, the franchise tag really ends up being the same thing because it's, it's one-year deals. It's just understood as one-year deals from the start, but 
most of these contracts in the NFL are, are, are one-year deals anyways. Um, Kirk, you, last year, I think in the last couple of years, one of the things that's interesting about you is your, your, your sort of your emotion after games. Mm-hmm. And you're such kind of a calm, thoughtful, well-read person. And yet, after games, you've got this little Tasmanian devil in you, <laughs> where you, you, you're screaming at people, you're, right. you're, you're, you know, you're rubbing your general manager on the head, and how do you like me now, and everything. What gets into you after a game? Well, that intensity, that Tasmanian devil, is always there. Uh, it's just measured for me. I think at times I have to be careful not to stick my foot in my mouth and not to have the pedal to the metal at all times because that can hurt me as a quarterback. So I try to be very measured in interviews and and uh, be careful what I say. I, I've grown tired of a, a three-second quote being taken out of context and being made an entire headline. So I try to tread very lightly with what I say. But there are other moments after a big win where there's relief, there's excitement, and I'm going to let the real Kirk come out. And that's the, the guy that my teammates see in the locker room, my teammates see at practice. But sometimes I have to be more measured in the public, around the media, and in, in those intense games. So that real Kirk does come out at the end of some of those games, and that's the side of me that I wish I could show more, but I have to be careful too. <laughs> what, was your, what was your reaction to sort of the Scott McLuhan fiasco? I'm, I'm still reacting to it in the sense that I don't fully understand the situation. I don't know what took place. I don't know why it, it happened. Um, and some of the things I do think I know, I don't even know if they're true or not. So I know that. What, what, about, the, what about the rumor that people saw him drunk in the locker room? Yeah, again, it's rumors. I, I just don't um, – I have no way of proving that or disproving that or yeah. saying what's true or what's not true. I don't know. But um, what I do know is regardless of who the GM is, who the owner is, who the head coach is, the president, and the decisions they make, they've given me an opportunity to be the starting quarterback. It's a it's an opportunity of a lifetime, and I want to make you know the best of that situation and hopefully prove them right and uh, have a great season this year and give them reason to want me around for the next decade. But um, I've got enough in that role to keep me preoccupied that I'll let the, the other decisions get made by the people above me and uh, do the best I can to lead my teammates. You have basically, and we talked about it a little bit, talked about the whole uh, report that you wanted to be traded, and you said you never asked to be traded, and you've sort of been very plain with that. So I'll ask you this right now. Do you want to stay in Washington? I want to be where I'm wanted. And that's what I've said all along is, you know, when, when a team is willing to step up and commit to me fully uh, for the long haul, then why would I want to be anywhere else? I mean, this is an incredible fan base. Uh, it's one of the top five fan bases in the history of the NFL. Uh, goes all the way back to the early 1930s. There's three Super Bowl trophies. Uh, there's multiple Hall of Famers. Uh, there's high character players still living in the area, Daryl Green, Art Monk, guys that we can learn from. Um, I, I love this organization and, and uh, want to see us get back to those glory days that they had with Coach Gibbs in the 80s and early 90s, and uh, I want to add to that great history. And um, There's really no reason to want to look elsewhere. Uh, it's a matter of, of uh, you know, wanting to be where you're, where you're wanted, and I think that's what all of us want, not just in football, but in any walk of life. Here's my last contract question. So even though you, you'll make a jillion dollars over this time, okay, most quarterbacks at this point when they've had 
the accomplishments in the last couple of years that you have. Their teams are locking them up long term. So does any part of that bug you that you're not getting locked up long term? This goes back to the fact that when you know my story, this has sort of been the the narrative for me. Uh, I was a junior in high school. I felt like I threw the football well, but nobody was interested. I play my entire senior high school football season with zero scholarship offers. I'm going on recruiting visits without a scholarship offer. The schools are whining and dining other players. I'm trying to convince them to offer me. I'm recruiting them. They're not recruiting me on my recruiting visits in, co- in, in high school. This was the way it went. Uh, then I go to college and uh, Coach D'Antonio, uh, you know, chose to bring in two other scholarship quarterbacks. At one time, it was myself, Keith Nickel, and Nick Foles, all at Michigan State competing. Uh, no one ever said, Kirk, you're going to be the guy. We completely believe in you. We're just going to give you the job, and you better prove us right. It was, Kirk, we're going to give other guys scholarships, and you need to beat them out and prove to us that you're the guy year after year before we finally commit to you. And uh, It sounds a little bit like another college football quarterback from the state of Michigan, <laughs> Tom Brady. <laughs> hey, you know, I go back to Drew Brees and Tom Brady. Part of that, I think, is they were Big Ten quarterbacks, and I was a Big Ten quarterback, and I think there's a tie there. There's been other great quarterbacks in the NFL, but the fact that those two came from the Big Ten means a lot to me. And um, uh, so, anyways, that 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 has been a part of my story. So to say, does it bother you? Does it gnaw at you? You know what? I've learned to accept it as part of my life and the way things have gone for a long time. And this isn't chapter one for me. This is chapter ten or eleven where I've said, here we go again. You know, this the good thing new. about you is that you're able to have the sort of view that. You know, maybe it eats at you deep down inside, but you're able to have the view of, I'm going to go out and play football. And it's sort of a fatalistic view. Whatever happens, happens. You can't control it. Whatever happens, happens. And I think for me, I play better when I feel like I'm still ascending the mountain. Um, I, I think I play better when people say, you know, keep showing us what you got. Keep showing us. And whatever's going to get me to play at a high level is what I want to do. So I'm okay with it. And, um, um, you know, we're just going to keep going year by year. I got one last question for Kirk Cousins. So, uh, Sean McVay leaves. Friend of yours, very valued and trusted advisor. A young guy becomes the coach of the Los Angeles Rams. A, how do you think he's going to do the youngest coach in NFL history? B, what exactly will you miss about him? Um, I think he's going to do well. I I expect Sean to have great success. Again, the difference between 10 and 6 and 6 and 10, a really good season and a season where they're, everyone's criticizing you is four plays. And so you can't get too caught up in the outcomes. You have to look at the process. And um, the process that Sean operates with, I think, is very good, very healthy, and he's talented. There's a reason he is such a young head coach. It's because he shows so much promise, and there is a lot there to work with, a lot of dynamic charisma, intelligence, uh, a, a strong work ethic. Um, he's a guy who will sleep in his office, you know, much of the season for a desire to, to have the game plan as tight as it can possibly be. So um, as a result, he's helped me grow as a player and as a person. And um, I was fortunate to get to work with him. Um, and your second question along those lines was? Hey, uh, what will you miss about him? What, what, did, what did he leave you sure. with? Well, you know, his passion for the game. Uh, he's very easy to communicate with, very approachable. Uh, you know, the NFL season can get monotonous uh, through the repetition of the weeks and the grind and the ups and the downs. And um, with Sean, there's, a, there's a, an energy there that's fun to be around, and it's, it's enjoyable to, uh, 
to go to work every day with a guy like that. So I'll miss that dynamic and, and uh, the energy that he brings. Um, and, you know, we've made some great memories together. So it'll, it'll be fun to always have those. And uh, we unfortunately have to play him this year. So that's the way this league works is you, you make friends around the league and then you have to go out and try to beat them. But um, I look forward to watching him develop the Rams. And uh, I'm excited about, you know, the staff we have assembled in Washington with Coach Cavanaugh now as the coordinator. Kevin O'Connell is going to be a great addition as our quarterback coach. And Jay Gruden, I think, uh, as, as a play caller will be very helpful because he's been a great play caller in this league. It's, it's nice to know that we have a guy who's been there, done that, now calling the plays again. And uh, he knows me as well as anybody having been with me now for three seasons. So I'm excited about what we have in Washington, too. Kirk Cousins, it's been fun getting to know you a little bit. It only took a trip to England to get to do that, but thanks a lot for uh, being with me on the podcast. Likewise, Peter. Thanks for having me on. I've admired your work for a long time. Big fan of Sports Illustrated and all the articles you've written through the years. I've probably read all of them cover to cover and uh, just appreciate what you've done for our game and the way you've grown our brand and uh, look forward to hopefully giving you much more to write about in the years to come. Thanks so much. Thank you. This is the MMQB Podcast. QB Podcast. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Posting your job in one place isn't enough to find all the quality candidates. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top sites. And now you can. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. Find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by Fortune 100 companies and thousands of small and medium-sized businesses. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash MMQB. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash MMQB. One more time. It's free, people. It's free. ZipRecruiter.com slash MMQB. Back in the MMQB podcast studio with Tim Rohan, one of the writers at the MMQB who I work with. And Tim, a couple of months ago, we started talking about doing a Tim Tebow story. And you really, I must say, sort of went wild with the Tim Tebow story. Uh, you didn't just uh, settle for going down and reporting a story for a couple of days, you you really got into this significantly. So what made this such a compelling topic for you, and why did you choose to spend so much time doing it? <laughs> I, think, uh, it's, I think I was just fascinated by the idea of Tim Tebow, you know, this former football player who, whose career didn't work out, going and trying and playing another sport riding the long minor league bus bus rides, going to the park in Augusta, Georgia, striking out a couple times a night, and going back and working on his swing the next day. What, what compels a person to do that? I was just, that fascinated me. What does compel a person to do that? Uh, you're going to read about it in the story. It's, it's very complicated. I don't think Tim has uh, a clear answer for why he's doing this. Uh, the one thing he points to is 
that he, he always loved playing baseball. It was always his second love, his second sport. He grew up playing baseball in his backyard. His dad built the Tebow boys a batting cage out of fishing net, and they'd swing in the backyard for hours. And he was a you know, pretty good high school player. He thought he could have gone pro in baseball at a high school if he had not gone and played football at Florida. So it's almost as if his football dream ended and he, wanted, he was famous enough and rich enough and powerful enough that he'd go try and make this childhood baseball dream maybe happen. And, you know, that's kind of wild. I was sort of taken, of all things, when he got a base hit off Michael Walker of the St. Louis Cardinals in spring training. And he hit it pretty hard. And I looked at that and I said, you know, Michael Walker throws 96. I have no idea what he threw on that particular ball, but that more than anything else convinced me, okay, everybody can get lucky once in a while, and maybe that was just him getting lucky. But I, and, and, and look, I'm dubious just like everybody else whether he can make it. But take me into the last couple months of his life. Is there anybody out there who truly believes that he can do this? Uh, yeah. I mean, his family and friends support him. And, and when you say do this, he can play in the minor leagues. Like, he could play for the Columbia Fireflies. I mean, right now he's batting 176 in his first nine games, but he's got nine RBIs, got a couple home runs. And do this, I don't think anyone is realistically thinking that the major leagues is something that's going to happen. So then the question becomes, why play in the minors? Like, what... Why, why take the long bus ride? So you, he has had those moments. Like you said, the single off Michael Walker. He had a home run in his first at bat. Everyone was up, you know, had the camera phones out. And, and now I think the, my story gets into it's interesting what's going to happen next. Now that, you know, the heroics are done, he hit the home run the first at bat, and now it's the slog. Now it's the grind. It's the grind. And there was a moment, and there's a moment in the story, and I think you'll like this. Uh, in the sixth game of the season, one of the games I was down there when I went to watch him, it was the first game the Fireflies were down in a game. First time they were losing. And it didn't happen until the sixth game of the season. And Tebow had, had been struggling a little bit late, and he's in the dugout, and he's getting ready to go hit. And he turns to the, his hitting coach, Joel Fuentes, and he gives him one of his patented speeches. You know, Florida locker room, like, we're going to go do this. We're going to come back and win this game, show them who we are. He's getting fired up, you know, playing for the Columbia Fireflies. Like, they're going to win this game. <laughs> And he gets up there, and he strikes out looking. And, you know, he's trying. He's really trying, and, you know, God bless him for trying. I thought you were going to tell me he had a 500-foot home run, and they carried him off on their shoulders. That's the Disney movie (laughs) ending. This is a messy story. You don't, you know, like, he's trying. But you know what you told me a couple of weeks ago that I thought was really interesting? And look, I don't know the minor leagues in baseball very much, but I think the common person out here and the person listening to this will say essentially that, uh, I mean, he's just taken up somebody's spot, some real prospect spot. But you told me, because you used to cover baseball, you covered the Mets, and you disabused me of that notion. You said... There's a lot of guys in minor league baseball who aren't really legitimate prospects yeah. that the major league team believes one day is going to come up and play in City Field or Yankee Stadium. Yeah, that's a. I mean, that's the a big myth. People saying that because you know every minor league team has three, four, five guys who maybe have a chance of playing the big leagues one day, and that's kind of the depressing reality of minor league baseball. These guys are getting paid like eleven hundred dollars a week. And then to do what, you know, and it, it, it maybe have the chance of making it someday. And now Tim Tebow's one of those guys. 
he just has a chance. And, you know, anyway, yeah. So I, I think people, people were saying, oh, Tim Tebow's taking someone's spot or whatever. That's not really the case. You know, it would have been some other Joe Schmo playing left field for the Columbia Fireflies. How do the guys on his team like him? These guys are all younger than he is, right? By yeah. like six or seven years, right? Yeah. They love him, uh, you know, because he's a hardworking guy. I think he wins people over with how hard he's working. He's in the he's taking batting practice two, three, four times a day, just trying to get better, and which is you know absurd. And uh, there was a moment um, when he was playing for the Arizona Fall League. You know, all of his teammates. He's he's twenty nine years old. All of his teammates are in their early twenties. They're these all stars, you know, high draft picks. And there's one day on Halloween. You know, they played a prank on him. One guy came dressed up as Tim Tebow, the football player. <laughs> he had on a Broncos shirt. He had John 316 written on his eye black. And, and you know, so they, 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 they mess around with him, too. And he takes it. He, you know, he laughed at that. He, t- he posed for a photo with the guy. You know, Tim's kind of moving into this next part of his life. He's kind of been able to smile and laugh at how his NFL career ended. And that's kind of shows you a little bit about how he took it. Do you think... Tebow really has a lot of regrets about his life in the NFL. He says, I mean, he, you know, I asked him that question and he, I don't, I don't think he, I don't remember him answering it straight on. He said he had regrets as far as, you know, plays he wished he had made. But as far as uh, the whole thing, you know, I talked to a lot of people about this idea. Tim is kind of come to peace with the way the NFL happened because of his faith, because he believes that it was all part of quote unquote God's plan that he was meant to not make it because there's something else coming that he's going to be meant to be doing. Now, whether that's baseball or not, that's kind of a question that we're asking in the story. But he's doing speaking events. He's doing charity work. He's doing he's working for ESPN, and he's kind of incorporating his charity work there. So he's kind of – his life is in, in the state of seeing what's next right now, and it's just interesting to see how baseball kind of fits into that. Is he – I'm with Tim Rohan of the MMQB. Tim – interviewed Tim Tebow down in South Carolina last week, and we're going to bring you a part of that conversation with Tim Tebow, about 30 minutes of it, here in just a couple of moments. But before we do that, I want to uh, I want to ask you just two other specific things that, you know, there's something about this story that, you know, the cynical person would say, okay, Really, why is he doing this? There's some hidden meaning. There's some hidden agenda somewhere. Is there any chance that that's true? Uh, well, it's yeah, and it, it's again. That's why this is such a complicated story because you don't know, and Tim doesn't really know. Tim doesn't know why he's playing, other than it was his childhood dream, and he wants to pursue it. And so, you know, on the surface, you're like, what? Right? Really? And uh, one other kind of you know, possible explanation that we kind of get into in the story. And I asked him about this and he he kind of agreed with this, that he's kind of turned his football career into something that he talks about. It's something that when he goes and speaks at public speaking events, he brings it up and he uses it as as an example uh, for people to learn from about how he failed and he kept going and went on. And maybe his baseball career, he's gathering more stories, right? He's gathering more stories, so now he's going to be able to tell people about that time he hit the home run in the first at-bat of his minor league career. And so he's just living life and pursuing it, you know, in the back of his mind thinking, you know, I'm going to be able to tell people about this the rest of my life. Like, I got to play minor league baseball. So that's not, you know, a vicious or, you know, 
you know, alter reason, but I think that plays into it too. And he's not in for the money. He's not making any money. What, what does he need the publicity for? He's already famous. So, you know, it's, it's, I don't, I don't see a lot of, you know, bad in it. A lot of ulterior motives. Yeah. Um, I, I always think back to a game he played in the NFL, he played a playoff game against the Pittsburgh Steelers, the Hall of Fame Dick LeBeau coordinating the Pittsburgh Steelers defense. And here's Tebow, the game's in Denver. And here's Tebow, he throws a long pass to Demarius Thomas to win the game in overtime. And I always thought, even though they got killed the next week by the Patriots, I always just thought that that's a moment in anyone's life to beat the Pittsburgh Steelers in the playoffs with a touchdown pass in overtime, to beat the great Dick LeBeau's defense, Troy Palomalu lurking at safety. I mean, it, it's just, that has to be a moment that no matter what happens to him and no matter what he thinks about, no matter what people think of him, that's one of those, they can't take that away from him. Yeah, and he, you know, his family and friends were kind of open about that, how they would look at that moment or the comeback wins that he had with the Broncos as kind of proof that, like, he could play in the NFL, maybe. You know, maybe. We don't know. No one really ever gave him the chance to sit back there and learn and take a year. And, you know, he was with the Jets for a year, but then he bounced to the Patriots, he bounced around to the Eagles, and then that was really it. I think it really all has to do, in my opinion... Uh, he just wasn't an accurate enough passer. You know, I think that's... Re- and I forget what his numbers were, but if... 47%. You know, yeah, I mean, it's just... That's just not good enough. And I understand that because I was a big Tebow proponent for a while. And I understand that it's like... It's almost like... And I don't mean to get political, and I I don't mean this in a political way. But it's kind of like the people who love Donald Trump or the people who love Hillary Clinton, for that matter. I mean, they can do no wrong. And Tebow can do no wrong. Well, he did do something wrong. He he, he had more incompletions than completions. You're not going to last very long in the NFL if you do that. No, yeah. So I I, I've, I don't necessarily think he didn't get a good shot or anything like that. But I think that without being a more accurate passer, it was just going to be a really hard life for him. Um, one more question before we get into your, your conversation. So I... What is being at a Columbia Fireflies game like? And what do the do the crowds look at him like uh here's Tim Tebow the freak show, here's Tim Tebow the you know we really admire this guy for trying or what what are the crowds like? Yeah, I mean, you get a little of both. You know, every time he comes up, everyone pulls out their phone, take a picture or whatever. His jersey his shirt with his name on the back is on sale in the in the team store for $25, something like that. He's the only player who's got a, a shirt being sold. And then when he comes up, it's like all the every drunk fan in the stands feels the need to say something half sarcastic or or maybe it's, you know, some of it, you know, you know, Tebow or, you know, yeah. get him Tebow or, you know, he's on base and someone screams out, oh, Tebow's going to steal second. And it's like a joke to some people. And so, you know, some people I think are re- really interested in seeing whether he can do it, and some people are, you know, kind of the... But, you know, it's just like it's a minor league baseball game. You're asking about the atmosphere. There's sack races in between innings, mm-hmm. the constant, you know, pop music and video, you know, board stuff and, you know, running out on the field with a child before the game. And, and he's embraced all of it. He's been a great sport, and, you know, it's only been two weeks. 
So, you know, I think the kind of lasting question of my story is, how long is he going to keep doing this? How long do you think he will? Uh, you know, I think he's going to give it the season, and you know, he'll give it one good full season. And in the story, I report that um, during the last football season, he renewed his contract with ESPN to continue doing his work for SEC Nation. So at the end of this baseball season, he's going to go back to ESPN, the comfy flights, the screaming crowds, people adoring him on these college campuses. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, if he's, if he ends the season batting 176, I don't know if he's going to come back or maybe he will. But right now he, give me an example, like you go from Columbia to where and how long is he on a bus? Yeah. I mean, oh, so for example, like, um, at the day, so I was there for the last game of the first homestand, and then the next day they were going to Augusta, Georgia, which I guess was an hour, hour and a half away. Huh. But the team wasn't going to stay over in Augusta, Peter. They were going to drive back and forth every day from Columbia to Augusta so they didn't have to stay in a hotel. That's insane. So that's the life of a minor league baseball. That's, you know, you know. So in other words, they get on the bus what time? Maybe 3 o'clock? No, yeah, you get on the bus at 2 one and then you know game ends you're back home by midnight 1 a.m 2 a.m wow. you know depending so you know that's 1 p.m to 1 a.m 12 hour day and you're on a bus for three of those hours so wow you know i mean he's making a thousand dollars a week you know he's he's doing it yeah well that's good so what are we going to hear in the in your conversation what 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 should people expect here in the next half hour yeah so uh you talk we talked to Tim about um the call he had with Chip Kelly when his NFL career ended the last team to cut him we talked about uh kind of why is he playing baseball and there's a lot of people saying you know why are you doing this with the naysayers and he gets on a passionate run about that and then uh we wrap it up with a little bit of fun because uh, before he chose baseball, he was kind of considering what other options he might choose, and we played a little what-if game. You know, what if Tim Tebow got into politics? What if Tim Tebow got into movies and became an actor? And uh, What about Tebow in politics? Well, Tebow in politics, he, didn't, he said it's possible someday. He wants to do good by people, and he thinks yeah. that, you know, and uh, th- some people close to him think that that's his destiny, that he's going to end up mm. being, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger or, what, you know, what, a governor or whatever, um, but being a leader in politics, you could see him giving an impassioned speech. I could, I could see that. I could definitely see it. Yeah. Well, Tim, listen, thanks so much for joining me and for writing the story. I Obviously, I haven't read it yet, but I'm really excited to do so. And everybody, uh, Tim's work precedes him. And uh, I guarantee you, you'll enjoy this story on Tim Tebow. So um, we're just going to go into the story right now. Tim Rohan interviewing Tim Tebow. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the MMQB podcast. I'm Tim Rohan here in Columbia, South Carolina, with the newest Columbia Firefly, Tim Tebow. Tim, thanks for coming on. What's up, man? I do like that uh, the interview voice. That was solid. <laughs> Turned it on well. I told him. I told him we're, we're about to we're about to go into broadcast mode. Uh, so anyway, uh, here on the podcast, we're just going to talk about. Uh, some football, some baseball, and uh, just get an update on Tim Tebow's life uh, in the last couple of years. And uh, the first thing I want to ask was uh, a football, some, a few football questions. Okay. And going back to a scene from your book, in Shaken, you wrote about uh, the end of the Eagles. Okay. And your last preseason game. And uh, it was kind of a funny moment, it seemed like. 
uh, you're, you know, you end the game and everyone's telling you, like, you made the team, you made the team. And, you know, if you, going back, you, you played for the Patriots, the Jets, and, you know, the Broncos. And now you're with the Eagles. And I don't know, can you take us through? You're sitting on the plane, right? And, and what kind of happened there? Well, um, sitting on the plane, getting ready to fly to uh, Arizona because we had a couple off days. So to go see my trainer, train for a couple of days, um, prepare. A lot of people are, you know, kind of giving me the thumbs up. And um, then the plane's getting ready to take off. And um, one of the other quarterbacks um, just got traded. And so you're thinking, wow, this is, you know, probably going to be a, a good fit. This is probably going to be a, a great opportunity. Um, you know, looks like I'm going to be an Eagle. And then <laughs> pretty soon after that, I get the call from Chip and um, we have a great conversation. And then it's, you know, once again, it's figuring out the next steps in life. And, you know, where do we go from here? What, and you, but you're, you're sitting on the plane and, and the flight attendant uh, is literally saying like, Congrats on making the team. There were a lot of people saying that. You know, all the people sitting around me, you know, they're coming by patting you. Oh, great game. Congratulations, blah, blah, blah. And so, yeah. And in, in that moment, like, and then the pilot came out, right? The pilot, yeah. What did he say? You know, oh, just great game. Got to catch it uh, last night. You know, you're doing well. Keep it up. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you thought, but I mean, you're thinking, like, I, I made this team. I'm going to be a Philadelphia Eagle. Um, I was preparing for that, um, and I think that a lot of signs were leading towards that. And um, sure, I think in, a, in certain senses, yeah, you kind of get your hopes up. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then, so then you you get to you get to Phoenix, like you're saying, and you know, in the book you talk about it, you're like you're sitting in you're sitting in your hotel room, you get you get the call from Chip, mm -hmm. and I don't know, he said, what, what do you remember what he said or? Um, not exactly, um, but in, in certain words, we're going to go in another direction, and we had a great conversation, and, um, you know, I think he's an awesome coach. I think he's an innovator in football. I think he does a lot of things different than other people, and I think that some of those things will really catch on one day. Um, I just don't think he thought that I was the right fit for that system. Um, and although I thought it could be could have been pretty fun. Um, yeah. You know, but I, I had no hard feelings or ill will towards him. I think just for me, it was kind of um, obviously, you know, um, dejected, frustrated, disappointed. And at that moment, you know, thinking, okay, you know, how got to, you know, I have to handle this the best I can. And um, so leaned on my close family, friends, and obviously my relationship with the Lord. And then kind of finding, all right, God, what do you want me to do next? Yeah, so I, I was going to ask, like, you know, so you're in that moment and, you know, you get that call from Chip and you hear it didn't work out the Eagles. At that point where you're like, okay, maybe I need to find something else other than football? Well, I think it was, at first it was kind of let everything um, sink in, you yeah. know, really figure, you know, don't just make any rash decisions, but actually before, well, when I got the first call from Chip, I was in um, Boca Raton, Florida, and I was taking um, hacks off of um, some different pitchers there and having a pretty good day thinking, you know, I'm, this is something that I'm probably going to go with. And I'm literally in the on-deck circle, and um, my brother hands me the phone and says, it's Chip. And I'm thinking, oh. Like, really? I was like, just got excited about this. And then he called and I'm torn again. And, um, 
but I got really excited about that because of the style of offense and how I play, and I thought that could be a mix. And so even the entire time, I mean, shoot, the entire time I was playing football in general, baseball was a little bit in my mind because it was something that I loved. It was my first love, too, and so you kind of never fully gets away from you. And so after that time with the Eagles and had a little time to, to think about it, you know, and pray about it and talk to family, you know, it was something that was always with me. And that kind of fire, I think, got bigger and bigger um, once I started to pick up a bat and train a little bit more. And um, and it was something that, you know, there I believe I had that fire for a reason and I wanted to, you know, see what I could do with it. Yeah. I, I think for, for our listeners at, at home, just to backtrack there. So what Tim was referring to was uh, in spring 2015, uh, he was, he was, I guess, working out with uh, Brody Van Wagenen of CAA, uh, who would go on to be his baseball agent. And Brody was kind of putting him through some workout skills. And now this is going back to 2015. This is pre-Eagles. And uh, he's going through this workout, and Chip Kelly calls. Yes, and with, that's exactly right. With an offer to... Uh, Good on your research. I like <laughs> it. <laughs> so it was like in the middle of the workout? It was just... you were. It was in the middle of the workout. But it was like a, a sim game. Yeah. So you have the workout, and then at the end, they have a sim game. Yeah. And um, so it was in the middle of the sim game, and I was getting ready to get another at bat. And um, was feeling pretty good about the day. Hey, you know, I'm facing some guys that are pretty good, and you know, I'm hanging in there with them. And then he calls, and it was like, oh, "What do you want me to do?" Like I'm, you know, and was torn. You know, it's just which I have been a lot in my life between certain things, especially in sports or teams, or whether it was Florida or Alabama or so many different things in, in my life. And but that was something like, okay, if. This, if this offense, is, you know, if they want me and this offense, you know, seems to be a fit, this could be pretty special. So that's why I wanted yeah. to give yeah. the Eagles run a shot. And then, as we were talking about it, fast forward, then, you know, you're sitting on the plane, you think you made it, and then you get the second call from Ship, and, and you said, like, something like, you need more reps, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And, um, you know, it would, I mean, we talked for a while. I mean, I don't know how many minutes on that call, but, you know, we had a great relationship, and we still do. Um, so we just talked through the strengths and weaknesses and definitely getting more reps in that offense and seeing it and being able to play fast in that no huddle system. And, um, so that was definitely, um, some, de some comments that he gave me, um, and, you know, really walking away from that, um, situation when getting off the call and sitting on the edge of the bed, it's, you know, you're frustrated, you're disappointed and it's okay, you know, kind of. All right, God, what what are we doing next? What's the next step? What's the next piece? And there's been several times in my life where I felt like that, but that was definitely one where it was um, a sense of disappointment, but also, you know, once you kind of gather yourself, um, a sense of hope too, because what's going to come next? Uh, and when one door is shut, there's going to be another one that's going to be open. And... Um, new things are, can be pretty exciting and that, that new test I knew that something would come along and um, I kind of think it's cool at us baseball yeah no absolutely and, and <clears throat> well I think just backtracking before we get into baseball but you know I think you you had opportunities to play like tight end or h-back or mm -hmm. some other position yet you, you probably you could have gone to the CFL you know why why didn't those those things appeal to you well as a football, I love the sport of football, and I love the team aspect, but probably my favorite part of the game of football 
was when there's two minutes left. We're down by six. I stand in the huddle. The other 10 guys on offense are looking at me, depending on me to help get the job done. And that the leadership aspect, the fire, the passion, everything, and then getting it done. And, and that's something that really comes from the quarterback position. And yeah, you can do it at other positions, but I love playing the quarterback position. If I wasn't going to play quarterback when I was in high school, I was going to go pro out of high school for baseball. And so, although there were certain, you know, teams that really liked me at H back or running back or tight end, um, it just wasn't my passion. And though I thought about it and I gave it prayer and consideration when I thought how excited or how much in love am I going to be doing this versus giving baseball a shot, my eyes always lit up when I talked about this endeavor because it was something that I always had with me. I never had the dream of, man, how cool would it be if I was an H-back. I had the dream of, man, how fun would it be to try to take on this challenge of baseball, right? The hardest thing to do in sports. And so when I weighed what was in my heart, not what was easier. That, that's not it at all because I think doing, you know, that probably, you know, H-back, tight end, running back, whatever, would have been easier. I think it would have been a pretty easy transition. I thought I maybe even could have been decent at it. But it's not about how successful you're, uh, you are at what you do. It's how much you enjoy it. How much do you love it? And for me, I there's certain things that I love. I love trying to hit a baseball. I love the challenge of it. I love the work. I love the um, that it is one of the hardest things to do in sports. And so when I was really weighing those two, it was, it was what gave me the fire. What did I really wake up most excited about doing that day? And I think that made the decision easier for me. And, and no, the CFL wasn't even in, in your... In oh, it's something that yeah. um, I thought about, um, prayed about, talked to people, um, met with the Alouettes about, and was in, you know, intrigued with it. Um, but again, the, the fire of, of baseball was more so than that journey. Although I think there could have been pretty cool things about that journey too. Um, that definitely got me excited and it's not like any of them are bad options. Yeah. It's just, you can't do everything, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, uh, that's kind of where my head was at a little. So, so you get, you get into baseball and, um, one of the things that stood out to me just talking to people was, you know, how hard you're working and the number of swings you're taking and your hands <laughs> you, were, you, if you, you can't, our listeners can't see your hands right now on his right hand. He's got about the size of a, a quarter, right at, right at the base of his hand on the palm, there's a black scab scar. Your hands are just bleeding from how many swings you're taking, right? <laughs> yeah, um, <clears throat> I guess I needed to toughen them up a little bit, still do. But for me, it was the biggest thing in baseball that I have to catch up on is the reps. And really not really the biggest thing is the reps off a live pitcher seeing it out of the hand um but as many ways as i can try to make up for it simulate it do whatever i have to do get the you know get as many reps as possible that's what i tried to do so when i decided hey this is something that i'm going to do i just jumped all in and i went to work and i was so thankful to have some awesome guys that have helped me out you know the, the Chad Molers, Gary Sheffields, um, Daniel Murphy's this summer. Um, it's just been 
awesome who have really invested in me and helped me and um but the thing is like that that challenge that journey was something that was so exciting for me that really that fire was there and I'm so thankful that I have other people to really like to push me in it too yeah. and also believe in me in the in the process but it was it was fun but the hands getting torn up was part of it yeah well, still is <laughs> yeah yeah well and you, you talked about it a little bit like I mean we've read stories and heard stories about how good of a you know little leaguer high school baseball player you were like I mean did you think you could have turned pro if you if you if you went out of high school and Well, I I left after my um, senior football season. I didn't stay for basketball or baseball. Um, But if I would have stayed, I think I would have had an opportunity. An an opportunity to get drafted and go play Mm -hmm. professional baseball. Yeah, it was kind of my mindset in uh, high school a little bit. I either wanted to go early to um, go start training to be a quarterback and competing for the job wherever I was going to go, whether it was Florida, Alabama, LSU, Michigan, Southern Cal, wherever it was, or I wanted to stay, play baseball, and probably try to go pro out of high school. And it was funny, even my family was kind of torn on it. My dad's thinking, you're going to get hit a lot less in baseball, and you're probably better at baseball. But my mom's kind of like, yeah, but we'd love to get an education, you know, and so... You're a southern boy. You listen to mom a little bit. <laughs> of course, of course. So then, um, I mean, had you been like talking to scouts or like how serious had it, was it? Yeah, we had been talking to scouts. Um, for the most part, I try to stay away from them um, and just stay focused. That time would come. Um, but, you know, scouts would be at our games and um, be around. And we're fortunate in my junior year, um, our team, to have a really good season and, and make it to the final four. So we, we got to play in front of a lot of people. Okay. And then, you know, fast forward to now, and, you know, we just talked about the work you put in. Uh, one guy that you've been working with, Daniel Murphy, mm-hmm. you know, finished second in the MVP last year. Like, what, what kind of – you guys are neighbors, right? Yeah, we're neighbors. <laughs> so that helped. Wasn't far away. So what, what were you guys doing? What kind of tips was he giving you? What are you guys talking about? Uh, just, you know – so much. He is, um, first of all, such a great baseball player, an awesome, even better person. Um, but he also is super analytical about everything that he does, his swing. And so for a novice like me into the sport, it was just an opportunity to just soak up so much information, just baseball talk. And he can talk baseball all day long. And so it was just soaking everything up. And then um, really, you know, what can I apply from that he does in his training and his swing to what I'm trying to do. And so it's learning a lot of different things and just certain mindsets and that he has that he takes into his approach. And so uh, rhythm, timing, um, get trying to get the ball in the air. Um, and, you know, he just he does it really, really well. And so to be able to work with him and see how he does it and then – even some days get to go out there and compete. It was just really fun. Yeah, and you guys were you guys were out hitting on Thanksgiving. I yeah, <laughs> Thanksgiving morning we were out there first thing, you know, hitting before all the games were on and before his wife called him back and said, "You better get home." Um, but that's how, how much of a baseball junkie that he is, and is just fun. But you know. Yeah, so it was, and then you know his his brother would show up and his friend, and then you know so my family, and so next thing you know it's Thanksgiving at the baseball park. Yeah, yeah. Is there is there one piece of advice he gave you that it's kind of stuck with you or anything like that? 
Um, a lot of different pieces of advice. Um, but one of the big things is that he would always say is only 7% of balls hit on the ground go for extra base hits. Get the ball in the air. Get the ball in the air. Good things happen when you get the ball in the air. And um, and then the other thing is just be on time, you know. Um, you're, you can, you know, if you're late, it's so hard to make up for it in this game. And you have rhythm and be on time. You mean, you mean in the batter's box, not punctuality. <laughs> Both, but yeah, in the batter's box, yeah. yeah. So, you know, so, so you've been, so the baseball Thanks thing. Thanks for clarifying. Yeah, of course. Sure. Yeah, that's what I'm here for. So, uh, you know, so you, this baseball thing has been something you've been thinking about since 2015. And, you know, now it's been two years of you thinking about it. Obviously, you went and played for the Eagles. So, uh, you know, obviously you've thought a lot about it. What's, what's your goal? Do you want to play in the majors? Is that, you know, I mean, what's, what's kind of... I think that would be awesome. That, it would be, yeah, that would be amazing. I would love to get a chance to play in the bigs one day. Um, for me, I think it would take a lot of improvement, working, continuing to, you know, uh, strive in this process but at the same time it's not just the end goal like is you know is the only way this will be a success if you play in the majors and it won't because I'm going to enjoy every single day that I have I'm going to pursue it I'm going to I'm going to try to become as good as I can at this game and regardless of what happens I think it's going to be an awesome ride it already has been an awesome ride to be able to um go through the highs and lows just in the sport already that I've gone through to face two Cy Young winners in my first spring training when I get called up to the bigs to be able to, you know, have the experiences of, um, you know, in my first pitch and in instructs hit a home run, my first at bat here, like the highs have been awesome. Sometimes the lows suck when you strike out, but it's, it's awesome. And I get to look back, you know, when I'm 50 years and been able to, you know, have some awesome memories, highlights, highs and lows from football, college, pro, you know, the the challenge of trying to make it in, in major in in professional baseball, uh, however that story goes, but the memories, the challenge, the life that I lived, the the pursuit, like and I'm just so someone that believes in, in going after it, living life. Like the success or failure isn't about how you compare to everyone else. It's about did you do the most with what God has given you? And, you know, for me, I want to come alive in everything that I do. I want to pursue it. I want to live it. I want to love it. Like I don't want to hide behind curtains, you know, worried about what other people are going to say if you fail at something when I get to one day, Lord willing, be 50, turn around and say, dang, I've been, you know, I've been getting after it. I've been living life. I've been pursuing this. I have been, I, the stories I can tell, the, the life I've lived, the stories I get to tell my kids one day of, of what I tried to go after, regardless of what it was. Like, you know, I'm just such a believer in that and it's, it's how I want to live. And so even when there would be times when fear or doubt or the unknown creep in. It's like, okay, I got to go back to how do I handle those? I handle those with love. I handle those with that fire. I handle those with passion. And, you know, you, you'll get that question all the time. But, but what about all the naysayers? What about all the people, the doubters and everything? I've had those my whole life and almost everything that I've done. But I don't have to let other people and their thoughts control me and my actions and what I get to do. I get to play professional baseball every single day, have fun. Where that ends, I don't know. But I sure can tell you the beginning of the story has been a lot of fun. And it's been a joy. It's been awesome. And I can't wait till the game tonight.
Yeah, that's Tim Tebow, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and and so, you know, like you touched on it there. I think a lot of people, you know, look at you playing baseball and say, why? You know, why is Tim going through all this? You know, the training, the your hands getting, you know, worn down, and you know, the hard work, and you know, you have you've had some positive results, but it's also been difficult along the way. So, you know, is it, you know, you could make connections. Is it, you know, was your childhood dream? But I don't know why. But I'd also say, why not? Why does everything going to be start out with a negative connotation? You know, I mean, I I think that's unfortunate. Um, Sometimes a lot about how we look at things is, you know, unfortunately, sometimes we look at things that, in a negative way rather than striving for what we want to do and what we believe in and lifting each other up and building each other up and gosh that's someone that I want to be is the people around me I want to gosh I really want them to be better because my life was in it I want them to be inspired because I was around them I want them to believe more in themselves because I was around them I want them to strive for something now whether they are the best at baseball or football or basketball or their job whatever it is like you can't control that, but you can control being the best that you can, you know, being um, focused, being, having a great attitude, striving, working. Like those are all things that we can control every day. We get the choice to control all of those things. And for me, it's, you say why? Well, because it was a dream that I had since I was four years old. That fire was never out. It was a, it was a passion that was still in my heart. Even when I would be you know, on speaking tours through Montana or wherever, you know, in the off se- football off season, and I would be working out there on a football field at some small university and throwing, you know, passes, and I would see the baseball field over there, and some of the times the guys would be like, hey, you want to take some swings? Uh, sure. <laughs> and then I would, you know, go over there and, you know, hit a, c- a couple rounds of BP, and that might happen, you know, twice a year, but it was something that I would be like, dang, this is really fun. I love doing this, and how fun would that be one day? And um, something I'd always say to my, you know, brothers and sisters and friends and parents and stuff, like, how fun would that be, you know, one day to try to pick that up and do that? And, you know, shoot, even some of them would be like, yeah, that would be really tough. It would be hard. So many people would scrutinize you. I get it. That Part of that would suck, but at the same point, be awesome, you know? And uh, so why not? It's a good. That's a good question. Um, and now you're doing it. Now you're doing it. But um, kind of shifting gears. Uh, you know, I know before um, before you jumped dove headfirst into baseball. You know, some of your confidants and friends kind of threw out some other options for you. Maybe movies. You, <laughs> you ever you ever thought about being an actor, Tim? Uh, there's. You know, we've had different offers to be in certain movies and. Um, I actually did a tiny little piece for one not too long ago because um, I was helping some friends out on one um, that we think could be pretty cool. Um, but, you know, I think in, in certain areas, certain roles, to be a tiny little piece or part of it, that's cool. But do I have the same passion or fire that I would for baseball? Not even close. Really? Yeah. You don't want to be the next rock or... <laughs> or. <laughs> no, I think there'd be definitely things that could be cool, fun, exciting. Like, But I think everything has its time and its season, you know? And as an athlete, you only have so long to be an athlete. And, you know, it's so long where you're, before your athletic skills start to diminish. And um, so for me, at this time of, of my life, it's 
it's this is the the kind of the the fire and the passion that I wanted to go for. Maybe down the road, you never know. Could be interesting. Could you be in the you know uh, Braveheart too? Or oh, I love Braveheart. This is the best movie. Um, yes, if they made a Braveheart too, and they asked me to be in it. Um, I would say, uh, let me think about that for a second. Yes. Why is Braveheart your favorite oh, I love movie? it. Well, I think it's the story behind it, too. My dad got home from the Philippines, and um, we were so excited to see him. He'd been gone for about five weeks or so, and I was eight years old, and we um, sat my two brothers down on the couch and um, stood up in, in front of the TV and um, just tells us how much he loves us and how much he... Um, you know, he knows we all have goals and we're all ambitious and we want to accomplish certain things. And, you know, when we watch this movie, if we have love for whatever it is that we want to accomplish, like the man's movie, if we're passionate like him, if we're willing to sacrifice, if all these things, and he gives us this talk about how much he believes in us. And, and then he sits down and he has play on that movie. And I just loved it. And I totally ate it up. And I, and I, I loved the movie and I, I loved how much he was willing to sacrifice, what he believed in, why he believed in it. And then I also love the action. And Mel Gibson was pretty sweet too. Yeah, yeah. And um, so I, I just loved it. But it was also, I think, the, just you know, that with my dad you know, made it really special for me. Yeah. I've probably seen the movie 50 times. 50? Probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a good movie. It's a good movie. We also had a conversion van oh, yeah. when we were young, yeah, yeah, yeah. and so we'd be traveling to games. So you would only have so many movies, and so that one was on constant play. Playing on loop. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, it was. So the other, another, so there was the movies, whether you be an actor, and then another one was uh, politics. You, you'd be a, a, poli- a politician someday, too? Oh, I don't know. I, you know, I think that my biggest um, goal in life was to is to help as many people as possible um, and really to bring faith, hope, and love to as many people as possible. And our mission statement for our foundation is to bring faith, hope, and love to those needing a brighter day in their darkest hour of need. And so it is to bring for a lot of people when they're down on their luck and they've been hurt, they've been abandoned, they've been neglected, they've been abused. And that's so much of what we do at, at the foundation. But I think overall in general, just want to be able to help and love so many people. And so if one day I feel like the best place for me to do that is politics, then it would be something that I would genuinely think about and pray about. Um, I don't think that's this day, um, but could it be one day? Maybe. So you, you could run, you, you think, down the road. Like you said, could. you know, you're doing that. Yeah. Could, yeah. I'd have to really believe that that's where I could be, make the, I mean, it sounds so cliche, but the greatest amount of good. Yeah. But I genuinely mean that. If I could really felt like this is where, you know, I could change the most amount of lives for the better, then I would, I would think about that. Because, I mean, you, you haven't really, you haven't done a whole lot of that, but you were close to speaking at the RNC, right? Like, how close were you to doing that? <laughs> I don't know if I was close. They got asked, and then all of a sudden, you know, it's everywhere. Um, yeah, so that stayed private long. <laughs> <laughs> and so for me, it was just... There... For me, it was 
about wanting to be able to bring faith, hope, and love to as many people as possible. And I didn't feel like stepping into the political realm was going to be the best way for me to do that. Um, I think the best way for me to do that right now is through the platform God has given me and everything that all the initiatives we're doing at, at, T, at TTF. And um, one day, like I said, I don't know, maybe that could be the, the platform. Um, but I don't know. I'd give a lot of thought and prayer. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, you know, I'm sure you've surveyed the landscape and, you know, I mean, like you said, you want to, you want to do good. You want to be unifier of people. Like, yeah. what, do you, what do you think of what's going on right now in the country and the president and, you know, all, all this <laughs> div- division? That's Oh, the easiest question of all time right there, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll probably stay away from that one. Um, you know, because I, not someone that... You can't focus on what you can't control, and I can't control any of that. But I, I can control um, my actions, my belief, what I'm striving for, and also what we're trying to do at TTF. And and we are trying to bring people together. And I feel like we've been able to bring a lot of people together for Night to Shine this year. We had 150,000 volunteers, over 75,000 kings and queens, um, 75,000 um people with special needs were crowned kings and queens like that's bringing a lot of people together you know all our you know several thousand orphans that we're bringing together to love people you know just we are trying to bring people together to love people to care about people um in the best way that i feel like i can do that right now um but i'm always striving for ways to do that better and more and make the biggest impact as possible absolutely and well i'm just curious because you know your old teammate tom brady's close with President Trump. Have you ever met President Trump? Have you? you know I, ha- I have met him in the past. Yes. Okay. What do you guys? Were go- do you golf? I know you're a big golfer. <laughs> we have not golfed. Oh, okay. No. Okay. okay. <laughs> uh, so, so there's there was politics. There was movies. Um, another possibility is maybe like a speaking tour or, or doing some of that stuff. I, don't I, know. S- I still speak a lot. Yeah. And um, you know, I do it because I I feel like I can make a big impact and. Um, so in the free time, in the off time, there's not a lot of that baseball, but I, I do fly around and I speak and um, and share with groups and, and churches and prisons and hospitals and orphanages and so many different things. Um, but it is something that I'm very passionate about and Lord willing, I can do that for a long time. Yeah. So you're, I know you've been busy, so you're doing the speaking tours, you're doing your foundation and now you're playing baseball you're still doing ESPN too, mm-hmm. you know, and I guess just to kind of wrap this up here, uh, with the podcast, uh, do you, do you miss football? Like what, and what are there moments when you do? No question. There are moments where you miss football sometimes, especially like around Thanksgiving time, Christmas, that's probably like where you miss it the most because, you know, as a Gator, as Florida, Florida state, that's when you're gearing up for the playoffs in the NFL. And so you definitely miss it. And it's something that I always love football. I just, I love what I do for ESPN and SEC Nation and just our whole team there. It's awesome. I love being around the game. I love talking. But just because you love one thing doesn't mean you can't love another thing. And I, I just, I think I'll always love football. And there will, you know, be a piece of me that always wants to get out there and sling it around and go have fun and shoot with my brothers and my friends and family. I will. I'll, we'll go out there and we'll have, you know, our our turkey bowls and Thanksgiving and 
uh, those are more intense than probably any other game I've ever played in either. So, but we'll, we'll do that and I'll still love it. And if there are moments where you think, oh, man, I could be out there doing that right now. Absolutely. And it's just, I think how you handle those moments. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, do you think at this point you've kind of put your football career behind you? You think it's, it's done at this point? Yeah, I think for the, I, I do. And because this is this other passion I picked up that, I, that I'm loving and enjoying every day, um, the, you know, the homers or the strikeouts or the struggles, you know, it's so it's been, it's been really fun, um, been challenging at times. Um, and, and, and it's a different passion than football too. You know, it's, it's very different the way that your mind has to handle it, your body, your emotions with it. Um, so it's totally different, but it's been a fun journey. Okay. That seems like a good time to end. Tim, thanks for, <laughs> thanks for being with us here on the MMQB podcast today. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate it, man. All right, thanks. You're listening to the MMQB podcast. My thanks to Kirk Cousins, Tim Tebow, and our own Tim Rohan of the MMQB. This week, the NFL lost a Mount Rushmore figure in the sport of professional football. Pittsburgh Steelers owner and architect Dan Rooney died last Thursday. And, you know, there's just something about the life and times of Dan Rooney that simply absolutely should not be forgotten quickly. I mean, we all move on in our lives. We all basically take some time to reflect on people's lives, but it doesn't help us in our normal lives, so we just end up forgetting about it and we move on. Here's the reason that I believe that the NFL will miss Dan Rooney and cannot celebrate his life enough. Two things. Number one, he's an absolutely, totally complete person. Did you know that Dan Rooney was involved in the peace process between Ireland and Northern Ireland? Did you know that Dan Rooney gave an annual gift of 10,000 euro to the best young writer in Ireland. He's done that. He's awarded a prize to the best young writer in Ireland for 41 years. Did you know that when Dan Rooney was the ambassador to Ireland during the first year of Barack Obama's presidency, that every year on the 4th of July at his residence in Dublin, he would have a touch football game on the front lawn of his residence and invite all the people of Ireland to come see this great game that he loved. So he's a multifaceted person. But did you also know that it was Dan Rooney who in 1969 started this string of three coaches in 48 years? He hired Chuck Knoll an unknown offensive line coach for the Cleveland Browns. And all Chuck Knoll did is win four Super Bowl titles. Then his next hire was Bill Cower, who also won a Super Bowl. But what was interesting about both of those hires, in my opinion, is that he hired Chuck Knoll, and Chuck Knoll went 12-30 and 30 in his first three years. And Dan Rooney would not listen to anyone who said, well, that's it. We got to go get another coach because Dan Rooney fervently believed that they had a plan in place that was going to win. And obviously in the next 
eight years, they won four Super Bowls. And Bill Cowher, I always thought it was so amazing that after a 6-10 and season in the middle of his tenure, where fans were clamoring for the Steelers to fire Bill Cowher, you know what Dan Rooney did? He not only didn't fire him, he gave him a contract extension. And everybody, including me, thought that Dan Rooney was just, he was crazy. There was no need to do it. Cowher had two years left on his contract, but he did it anyway. And how did Bill Cowher and the Steelers respond? They went 26-6 and in the next two years. And the second year in that run, the Steelers won a Super Bowl. Then he hired Mike Tomlin. And Mike Tomlin, the amazing part of his hire is that you cannot believe, and I remember this, I lived this back in 2007. So many people said, who's Mike Tomlin? He was a first-year defensive coordinator for the Minnesota Vikings. And, but once, uh, and everybody thought that the Steelers were going to hire, uh, you know, a longtime offensive line coach and a Western Pennsylvania native, Russ Grimm, uh, who was a popular guy in Pittsburgh, and everybody thought that Russ Grimm was going to be the guy, but they hired Mike Tomlin, and everybody said, this is crazy, it's awful. But Dan Rooney hired him, he loved him, he was compelled to give him a, ch- a shot, and that uh, was part in the first year, uh, first years of the Rooney rule, this rule that was named after Dan Rooney that compelled every single team when they had a head coach opening to interview at least one minority candidate. Well, the Steelers, who knows whether Mike Tomlin would have ever even gotten an interview 20 years before as an African-American coaching candidate, but he got one here, and he was so impressive in the interview with Dan Rooney and his son, Art II, who ran the Steelers, that they said, we're giving this guy the job. So I think Dan Rooney lived in the land of opportunity, and he created the land of opportunity for so many players, so many coaches, and so many people on his staff. And finally, I would just say this. I talked to Paul Tagliabue, the former commissioner of the National Football League, who viewed Dan Rooney exactly the same way as Roger Goodell, the current commissioner, as the most important advisor that he had among the owners. And I asked Paul Tagliabue about the legacy that that. Rooney should have as as really the leader in so many commissioners' kitchen cabinets, going back to Pete Rozelle and all the great things he accomplished in football. And Tagliabue said that would be a very narrow way to remember Dan Rooney and to measure his impact. He said he had a huge impact on the planet, not just on the sport of football. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how I believe that Dan Rooney should be remembered. Thanks to my guests, Washington quarterback Kirk Cousins, Tim Rohan of the MMQB, and Tim Tebow of the Columbia Fireflies. If you enjoyed these conversations, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes in the MMQB series, such as my conversations with Tom Brady, Adam Schefter, and Bruce Arians. You can find these on the MMQB.com, on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. You can also hear the MMQB podcast with Peter King on Sirius XM Radio every Saturday morning at 7 Eastern on Mad Dog Sports Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 82. Thanks to the folks at Digital Media for their production work. 
And thanks, of course, to my sponsor, ZipRecruiter. Please support ZipRecruiter the way they support this podcast. And I'll see you next week. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. <laughs> 